cold chill cuts across a ship deep into Antarctic waters. It's vulnerable and alone, and the hyenas are circling. Three are already closing in when another appears on the horizon. These boats are hunters, designed to cut through water chasing a prey of another kind, but that can wait. Their sights are set on our plucky ship, the Bob Barker, for the Barker has a target too. Up ahead is the factory, where the hunters bring their kill for processing. Orange high-vis suits pepper the deck as the crew watches on. They know that soon they'll be surrounded, soon they'll lose the factory. There's a final hope for the Barker, resting on the shoulders of the nimble Addy Gill. The carbon fiber speedboat can't take on the hunters, but it's agile enough to break for the factory. 30 minutes of fuel remain, leaving the Addy one shot. The Barker watches on as the Addy races through, pulling up alongside the factory. It's dwarfed by the hulking mass that's now dousing it with jets of icy Antarctic water. Its crew weathers the storm, preparing a steel and force rope awaiting a signal. The Addy cuts across the factory and the line is cursed. They turn and wait, holding their breath. Tension pulls the air quiet, all eyes on the factory. It takes a while, but the ship begins to slow, drift and stop. In a sigh of exhalation, the Addy calls home. The Sea Shepherds have won today's encounter, and as long as they stay on the tail of the factory, Japanese whaling cannot take place. It's hard to classify the aggression of the Sea Shepherds. This incident took place in 2010, at the height of a game of cat and mouse that had already been going on for eight years. Here we have an organization clearly against the killing of whales, but they're taking their protest to another level. The high seas are a wild and lawless place, allowing the Sea Shepherds to promote their agenda on the international stage an arena traditionally reserved for states. This struggle was known as the Whale Wars. Hi, I'm Ben Potgira, and today we're going to dive deep into the Sea Shepherds and find a way to make sense of their international disorder. Now, before we get into the Sea Shepherds, it's important to understand what they were doing down there in the first place. Let me give you a little backstory into what's become a highly controversial and regulated industry. After new technology in the early 20th century rapidly diminished whale populations, the whaling nations of the world came together in 1946 to establish the International Whaling Commission. Its mandate was to provide for the proper conservation of whale stocks, which ultimately led to the decision to place a ban on all commercial whaling from the 1986 season onwards. That moratorium is still in place today. Now, obviously people continue to whale or we wouldn't be here. And that's because there's an exception to the ban. Article 8 of the IWC's founding charter allows a government to grant to any of its nationals a special permit authorizing that national to kill and treat whales for the purposes of scientific research. And that's exactly what Japan did. Except in the years following, Japan published few, if any, peer-reviewed studies of the program's finding. It's clearly superficial and there wasn't much that the other parties could do. They're limited to enacting symbolic resolutions, asking Japan to comply with the spirit of the convention. And this is where the Sea Shepherds come in. They have no choice but to act on the illegality they see and to put an end to it. 
at this point, it's important to realize that the Sea Shepherds were not the only organization out there. Greenpeace was there too. In fact, Greenpeace were the first ones to bring global attention to whaling back in the 70s. Looking at the two organizations, it's clear that they differ, and their competing attitudes to protest shed a light on what makes the Sea Shepherds such a unique case. On the one hand, Greenpeace rely on the mind bomb, the power of an image. They, they sort of, they bear witness, if that makes sense. That's Jerry Nagtam. He's a professor at Monash University, who's written a number of articles on the Sea Shepherds. So they won't act, but they will observe and then let people know what's going on. In this case, they normally take videos. As one of the activists put it, the direct actions call attention to the issues we're involved in. By challenging states directly, the Sea Shepherds are much more overt and simple. And this is true right down to the structure of the organization. Here's Jerry comparing the structure of the Shepherds to other environmental organizations. Uh, okay, so Sea Shepherds Conservation Group is a really interesting one in and of itself. They're the only one that have a hierarchy with Paul Watson very much at the apex. I think he once said something like, like the Starship Enterprise, I am Captain Kirk, basically, and I'm the one who gives the orders and everybody else obeys. See, Paul Watson is the Sea Shepherd, and understanding his perspective is vital. Where Greenpeace attempts to challenge our perception of the status quo, Watson hopes to shake it up by rocking the boat and sinking a few if necessary. He proudly refers to his Sea Shepherds as the shit disturbers. Now, Greenpeace always seemed to come up when talking about the Sea Shepherds. And over the years, Watson has made himself very clear where he stands. He says, we're not a protest organization. We're here to enforce international conservation law. We don't wave banners, we intervene. According to Watson, protesting belies an underlying attitude of submission. It amounts to begging. He goes further than that and refers to them as the Avon ladies of the sea. Ouch. Right. If you know what an Avon lady is. Actually, you know what they are? <laughs> uh, they, the Avon ladies sell uh, cosmetics door to door. Okay. Started in the US. So, so <laughs> I'm not sure it's as big a diss as he thinks it is, but yeah. it basically he's having a go at them. Now, if it seems personal, because it kind of is, Watson was an original member of Greenpeace. In fact, that first mission against Soviet whalers back in 1975 had a profound effect on the young Watson. They shot him in the head at close range. The sperm whale went into violent contortions and I caught his eye for a brief moment. The entire length of his body was towering over us so that all he had to do was let himself fall on us and we would have been swallowed up by the seas. But our eyes met again. His eye was right above my head. It was the size of a fist. What I saw in the eye of that sperm whale changed my life forever. He could have killed us. If he had just let himself fall towards us, he would have crushed us. But in his eyes I saw an understanding. He understood what we were trying to do. His muscles contracted, and with enormous effort he began to back away. As he fell slowly into the water, I saw his eye disappear under the surface, and that's how he died. Watson became committed. He was prepared to give no quarter, and according to him, Greenpeace was too in the early days. But as the organization grew in size and status, he found himself squeezed out. Today, he claims the organization consists of hypocrites self-victimized by size and inertia, 
Bureaucracy is like a poison for Watson. It's why the Sea Shepherds are set up the way they are, and why their strategy consists of the overt, more tangible action they're famous for. Stepping away from all this Greenpeace bickering, I think it's important we look at this strategy more carefully. For the Sea Shepherds, as already mentioned, the time for protest has passed, and it's up to them to put an end to the illegality. Forcibly, but responsibly, abiding by Watson's principle of aggressive nonviolence, whereby, if property is used to break the law, it can be destroyed. This has led to some fascinating tactics being employed. And then what they would do is that they would do anything they could to basically impede the collection and basically the um, dissecting of whale meat. So they would use Zodiac boats to go and harass. They would attempt to nail plates where the bilge water comes out of ships. They would put giant uh, ropes down to foul the propellers of ships. But their most famous tactic was using butyric acid. And what they would do is they would put butyric acid in bottles and they would throw that onto what's called the flensing deck. So basically where they cut the whales open. Now, butyric acid sounds incredibly horrible till you realize all it is is actually rancid butter. But if that rancid butter gets on the whale meat in any way, shape or form, that whale meat is spoiled and they can't use or sell it. So apart from Watson's bravado, why do they go to these lengths to intervene? As Peter Hammerstead, the captain of the Bob Barker, put it, we hope to encourage and inspire the governments of the world to actually do their job. The job that we are doing for them, enforcing the law down here. See, environmental issues are typically associated with complex technical causal chains. Just take a look at climate change. The Sea Shepherds differ in their image as legal enforcers. It suddenly simplifies the issue, appealing instead to our commonly held value of the rule of law. Further, while states may feel shame when conventional direct action names them as norm violators, the Sea Shepherd's direct enforcement runs deeper. It questions the very legitimacy of a state as an international actor, one capable of upholding its international agreements or enforcing laws within its jurisdiction. Now, how important is legal credibility in this endeavor? Well, the Sea Shepherds claim they're empowered under the World Charter for Nature. Unfortunately, the Charter makes no mention of enforcement, direct action, or penalties, and it certainly doesn't empower non-state actors to carry out these objectives. It's also a non-binding resolution, and it's not considered a formal source of international law. Now, I would argue under no international treaty I can think of are the Sea Shepherds empowered to act. They're not. But because they operate on the high seas, there's always been what we call a lacuna or a blind spot to what you can do on the high seas. So I always like to say that if the Sea Shepherds were involved in ramming cars or trucks in the UK or in Australia, in America, they would be in jail for their actions. But on the high seas, those rules are more loose in a sense, and it's much harder in those situations. It's not like you can call the police out there on the high seas to deal with the actions. So legal credibility isn't actually that important. But what's vital is that we perceive them to be legitimate. It's the rhetoric that's key, and the Sea Shepherds rely on their appearance for credibility. Paul Watson once said, that everything we do and everything we think is defined and controlled by the media. He understands that communications is key. 
all right? That you need to basically be uh, advocating your cause globally to as many media outlets to reach as many people as possible to effect change. And he's been quite open about that. He's also been quite open, I would say, that he will do or say almost anything that he thinks will advance the causes that he's so passionate about. In this case, the protection of, of marine life. What's in those? Their technical credibility or not? The Sea Shepherds rely on their perception for legitimacy. He's been able to manipulate the media to get his image of the Sea Shepherds across. He knows how to draw attention, stating that whaling for most is purely academic unless high drama is introduced to make it newsworthy. In other words, The bigger the controversy, the better it is for Sea Shepherds. So he's waging a propaganda war, which kind of sounds like Greenpeace, but with much higher stakes. The Sea Shepherds take it to the next level in the hopes of igniting more emotion from those who consume it. And it worked. Some of you may have heard of Whale Wars, Animal Planet's top show in the early 2010s. It delivered the Shepherds International Disorder around the world. Recognizing the power of perception, Japan waged their own media war against the Sea Shepherds, labeling them as pirates. And that's a big deal. To explain why, here's Tor Craver. He's a professor of international law at Warwick University, who wrote his thesis on piracy under international law. So basically, uh, right, it gives legitimacy if we say, this is a pirate, then we can do anything we want. Um, okay, that's a, a bit of a stretch. But historically, right, that's what it's meant. And so they represent a threat to all of right, humanity or all of civilization embodied in this idea of the hostis humani generis. Uh, and therefore, right, any state should be allowed to attack these pirates to put an end to piracy. And so we get this figure of the pirate, right, as this extreme figure of enmity that threatens everything that we hold dear in civilization or international society, whatever it is. Uh, and therefore, the pirate may be dealt with in these extreme ways. To conjure up this image, Japan brought their claims to court. In Cetacean Research versus the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, the American Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit in Washington State found the shepherds guilty for piracy. A judge ruling on the case stated that you don't need a peg leg or an eye patch when you ram ships, hurl glass containers of acid, drag metal reinforced ropes in the water to damage propellers and rudders, launch smoke bombs and flares with hooks, and point high-powered lasers at other ships. You are, without a doubt, a pirate, no matter how high-minded you believe your purpose to be. So Japan actually won. But not too much came out of the case. An injunction was issued against the Sea Shepherds USA and Paul Watson. But they got around this, channeling their efforts instead through Sea Shepherd Australia and getting former Green Party leader Bob Brown to lead the next campaign. But the legal injunction wasn't really the point of Japan's efforts. See, what they really wanted to do was conjure up the image of the pirate. All right, so what I think people who are labeling actors like the Sea Shepherd as pirates is that they're interested not in you know, whether these you know, individuals or groups formally uh, fulfill the international legal criteria of, of what makes a pirate, but they're evoking an image to demonize these actors, right? And there's a long history to this. In response to these attempts, the Sea Shepherds try to play up a different image that of the anti-hero. Uh, and so in that sense, it's per it makes perfect sense, right? That an organization like the Sea Shepherds would embrace this idea of the pirate, not right, the idea of the pirate as a threat to humanity, but as 
challenge to not humanity, but certainly a challenge, right, to an international order that allows for environmental destruction, global warming, uh, that puts profit before you know humanity or before the environment, um, including right whaling. I don't think the sea shepherds are pirates. But their efforts to play up that image could fit them into a different classification. In 2007, Hiroshi Hatanaka, the Director General of the Institute for Cetacean Research, claimed that the Sea Shepherds are not an environmental group. They're a terrorist vigilante group that operates outside the law. And to a certain extent, Jerry agrees. I think, and I've argued this for years, they're better understood, or they certainly see themselves almost as vigilantes. All right? The IWC doesn't work. Nobody else, the states aren't getting involved here. Therefore, like Spider-Man or a ye old kind of US uh, American sheriff sort of thing in the Wild West, they are forced to act. Looking at a definition of vigilantes provided by Ehud Sprinzak, it seems they have a point. According to Sprinzak, what characterizes the vigilante's mind is the profound conviction that the government and its agencies have failed to enforce the law or establish order in a particular area. They believe that they are acting legally against criminal elements because the authorities are either too weak to enforce the law or negligent in their duties. So the Sea Shepherds are like these vigilante cowboys then. Whether legally entitled to or not, they will enforce the law and keep their media draw running. It gives them this larger-than-life superhero aura. But that's a bubble Japan finally decided to burst by reminding us that the state is ultimately more powerful than a pirate and his jolly crew. See, the Sea Shepherds were never going to stop whaling in Japan. A major goal of the campaigns was to bring the whaling industry to its knees economically. And the Sea Shepherds were pretty successful, preventing the industry from breaking even in the majority of its campaigns. And yet, Japan continued to whale. Private investors fell out many years prior, and it was totally reliant on government subsidies. Money was no longer a priority. I mean, there was hardly even an appetite in Japan for whale meat anymore. It's arguable that the Sea Shepherds were counterproductive then. Their animosity entrenched the government in its status quo, who viewed the challenge as a form of Western cultural imperialism. This was confirmed in 2010, when Toromasa Kodera, the leader of the Democratic Party in Japan, said that his party was firmly committed to research whaling. He admitted that the Japanese whaling industry was mostly paid for by the government, but that the Sea Shepherds had incensed the public, making it impossible for Tokyo to compromise now. Now, the public may be a little loosely defined here, as according to Atsushi Ishii, a professor at Tohoku University, research whaling claims to be protecting science and culture, but it's really just protecting bureaucratic self-interest. There's that poison again. Bureaucracy. But this self-interest runs deep. The yearly budget for the whaling industry is only $86 million, a small part of the Japanese budget. The fear for the government is that trying to cut the program would risk a huge political outcry from nationalists for only marginal savings. To further prove their commitment, the Japanese provided their whaling fleet with military-grade surveillance in 2017. And that was it. Game over. In Watson's words, Essentially, they can see exactly where we are, but we still only have a rough idea of their position. The Sea Shepherds announced the end of their Japanese campaigns the following year. 
And Japan even went a step further. They withdrew from the IWC in 2019. They can now commercially whale again, though they're limited to their own waters. So what do we make of all of this? Japan continuing to whale, it feels like a defeat. But the Sea Shepherds were successful in challenging a status quo that allowed for what was effectively a free reign in killing whales. And that's kind of been corralled. The end of the Japanese campaigns didn't spell the end of the Sea Shepherds either. Hammerstead, the barbacker's captain I mentioned earlier, noted that the decision to end the Japanese campaigns was simply a matter of us not wanting to waste our own resources. The Shepherds have evolved, and this new addition is arguably more effective than ever. Now, the organization focuses on collaborative ventures with governments to prevent local waters from poaching. Collaboration is exciting. It allows the Sea Shepherds to harness the legitimate power and authority of the state, while states benefit from the resources and experience of the activists. But I'm worried. We began our discussion with the international disorder of the Sea Shepherds, and that doesn't really exist anymore. As we've discovered, the Sea Shepherds rely on the media to make a splash. Without the big-ticket sell of their international disorder, their ability to attract volunteers, fundraise, and even remain relevant in the media might fizzle out. If the media is what provided our perception of the Sea Shepherds, I wonder what's in store for Watson and his crew.